On this episode of Progressive Palaver, the group discusses Russia's Roll the Bones and recounts our conversation with Rupert Hine. Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran and Paul Zotter as we discuss Rush's Roll the Bones as well as recount our conversation with Rupert Hine. So this is uh, this is this is a, a slightly different <laughs> format of progressive palaver from the usual because of some some technical difficulties here in Palaverland recently. Um, we are going to at this point do a hopefully fairly quick recap of what we did talk about with Roll the Bones that you guys will never hear, thanks to those technical little gremlins. And then uh, Tom and I are going to regale Paul with our tales of our interview with Rupert Hine, who produced Roll the Bones and Presto, and which you will also not hear, thanks to those same technical gremlins, but that's life in the big city. So we're just going to kind of go through this right now, and Paul, um, once we, you know, however this works out, if we want to just bring in uh, the Rupert bits while we talk about Roll the Bones, um, or if you just want to, you know, you can pepper us with questions after we, we're done with Roll the Bones on anything pertaining to Rupert that we didn't cover, and we can just go on from here. I love it. So let's begin Roll the Bones. I am guilty, I have to say, and you guys know this, I am guilty of having a bias on an album, about an album, almost in relation to a previous album because I sort of want to hear it a certain way. And if I don't hear it a certain way, I sort of, you know, you know, throw it some bad vibe. And so that was, you know, what I had done, you know, in, in, in the nineties. But, you know, when I sort of got over that and we, we went back and listened to it, I actually think roll the bones is a, a very, a very strong album. I want to take a, a quick second here, um, you know, and, and Tom, there, there's a lot in what you said, but I want to take a quick second because it, it sort of made me think of something when you mentioned Getty there um, that I saw on Twitter this morning and I, I wanted to share. So it's this picture of, of Getty looking kind of smug. I mean, okay. Okay. Very, very serious. I play bass and sing all while playing keyboards with my hands and feet. Tell me more about Beyonce's artistry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. I don't normally do the meme thing, but that one just kind of tickled my, uh, my funny bone. <laughs> and it seemed, it seemed to kind of fit right in um, with, with what we're talking about here. So, you know, and, and Tom, I think this leads in perfectly to, to one of the most fascinating stories that came out 
from our conversation with Rupert in regards to producing Rush. And apparently it it happened more so on Presto, but he sort of in, intimated that it may have also happened on Roll the Bones. And so he was telling us a story about how apparently, and Tom, correct me if I get this wrong, but there there seemed to be a situation where Getty and Neil and whoever their producer was at the time, so whether it was Rupert or Peter Collins or presumably um, Terry Brown, all apparently liked to stick their hands in the guitar production to, to, to the point where, you know, Rupert's impression was that, you know, Alex was, was overproduced by everybody. And his, his response to this, because they were, I guess they were recording in, in what it this was like the, the rural farm or something like that up in, in Canada, I believe. But wherever they were recording, they would, you know, work during the day and then they would each have their little space at night. And so Rupert, you know, encouraged Alex to, you know, take the tracks that they'd been working on, take them and work on his, I guess, his, his multi-track, whatever he had in his room at night, and just sort of work through stuff in the absence of any other influence. And so Alex would do that and it, Rupert described the first time he did it where, you know, Alex came back the next day and said, you know, here's what I did. And Rupert's like, all right, well, let's just put this into the master and just see how it fits there. And so Rupert put it into the master and played it for everyone. And they're all like, oh, yeah, I can see where that's going. And Rupert said, well, I guess that one's done. And they moved on to the next one. And he said at least <laughs> half of the tracks on Presto were recorded that way in terms of the guitar tracks where, you know, Alex would, would go off and do something and Rupert would just kind of stick it in as is. So, you know, I, I find it interesting, you know, we always talk about, um, you know, Alex and, and whether he's there or not and, and, you know, what Alex is listening to. Um, but, you know, here's, here's a case where there may have been more influences on Alex than I think, you know, any of us, I certainly never suspected. Did did I get that story so, right? Um, I I I I believe so. I, I believe so. Um, I didn't get to the part where I mean I, I I didn't understand it as he did most of the tracks that way. But I mean I I, I definitely that was a, a very important point in the uh, revelation of Alex's new sort of technique of of recording and um I, I found that to be very interesting you know i find that to be incredibly interesting joe because not only are we hearing this about alex i mean but <clears throat> i mean and please correct me if i'm wrong i definitely don't want to get this stuff wrong but he he was saying about neil and i it, it's the kind of thing that it's shocking because I actually, in the interview, I, I made him say it again. Because I, I was yeah, like, yeah. are you sure? He, really? And, but actually, Neil Peart would do one take of these songs. And then he was done. And, and that was it. And now, if you think about the process of recording, we've all been in the studio. 
we've all done our own stuff. Uh, we know how it goes. You, you play it. You, you you sort of listen back, and you go, okay, let's 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 try this. And there's a sort of a morphing that goes on, there's a, and and there's a this sort of growth that goes on. He just does it like once, and then okay, boom, I'm done. And that I couldn't understand that. So I actually I want to make sure I understood it pr- correctly, and I I I questioned him about it. I'm like Rupert, he, he really just did it one take. He said, yeah. And then, <laughs> and yeah, he said, virtually all the songs Neil did one take, and that was it. And it's not like it's not like Neil's playing, you know, a straight four on the floor rock beat, you know. Yeah, yeah. So going wow. back to Alex, uh, no, I mean he has his own own different thing going on. But it's interesting that he would put those parts actually in the master that he did the night before. And uh, maybe I was so in awe over the whole Neil thing. I couldn't, I couldn't piece together that, that sort of <laughs> comprehension. Yeah. Like, wow, he's just using that. And he's, and the, how, somehow getting that big sound from something that he was like, you know, piddling away on in his, you know, cottage or whatever um, yeah. on his own, own little recording equipment. So, so there's just a lot that um, when you look back at the Rupert, interview that he said when you really think about it it just it just puts another layer on the sort of rush the impressive rush world (laughs) that these things happen the way they do and um but he was saying what was he saying joe that normally they take what like four or five months to do an album and rupert wanted to do it in less or was it more yeah, so when they got together, and we'll have to come back as to one of the reasons why Rupert didn't want to produce them in the first place. But when they they first got together, um, right. you know, Rupert apparently is is a very you know focused, get it in, get it done, and get it out type thing. So he wanted to record Presto in three months, and Rush wanted nine or more, and and Rupert's like. I don't think that's going to really work for me. And um, they they ended up recording Presto in five or six months, but he did say that Roll the Bones took them three to record. So they were able to sort of, you know, work through each other's processes, I guess, um, in order to to, uh, to to record the albums. But but yeah, absolutely. And And back to the whole Alex thing, my notes here say specifically several... And in parentheses, up to half of the songs on Presto were done with Alex in an eight-track completely on his own. So it, it wasn't it wasn't most of them, but it could be up to half on Presto. And he suggested that it happened sometimes on on Roll the Bones, but I don't think it was all the time. Now that's the other still, uh-huh. I was just going to say that's still really impressive, just from a sonic point of view, just getting an ultimate guitar tone. Um, even you know we're talking over over, what, tw- over twenty years ago, still getting a sonic um, guitar tone from a personal recording type of situation, and bringing bringing that sound into the studio. If you're not really in that mindset of oh this is going to go on the final recording, right? You know, yeah. Sometimes you might just be like okay I'm just want to get the I just want to get the part out. I'm not worried about the sound too much. And the fact that they're able to 
to turn that around into a, a, a great guitar tone from like a mini home recording sound maybe, is maybe he used the zoom <laughs> well I, I wonder Tom if he if he recorded through something but also recorded like a direct track just a clean direct track that that then Rupert was able to process and do whatever it could very well be who knows I mean yeah, yeah. when we uh, when we talked about roll the bones the first time you know again when I first put this into the uh, to my CD player in preparation for for the podcast here you know I, I knew I knew I liked Dreamline, and I knew I liked Ghost of a Chance. I was afraid of Roll the Bones, and I didn't really have strong memories of either anything else beyond that. What I found was Dreamline was pretty much what I remembered. Bravado was way better than I remembered, and Roll the Bones was not nearly as annoying as I would have thought it would be. Hmm. Um, I still think Ghost of a Chance is the the, the, the be-all, end-all of this album, but... But through this, even before we talked to Rupert, Bravado was was really, really starting to do it for me. And, you know, we were talking about, uh, or Tom was talking about Rupert's appreciation for, for Neil and, and this ability to do, um, to do these, these things in one take. And I need to, uh, I should have been prepared, but I need to pull up something here because there were there was a there's a quote that i saw earlier that fits in exactly with what we're going to talk about but it turns out that bravado is, is way more of a hidden gem than we would have otherwise thought now one of the things that that rupert had said was you know when we were talking about neil specifically he he indicated that neil was the only time that he felt obligated as a producer to leave the control room to physically see what someone was playing because what he was hearing coming through the system, he didn't think was possible for someone to be, to be playing with only four limbs. <laughs> and, um, and, and it turns out that song was bravado, huh? Which, it, you know, it you, but you wouldn't think that at the time. Okay, so here it is. So Getty, in a, in an interview with Guitar Player in 1991, Neil's parts are complex too. Listen to the end of bravado. There's an example of limb independence that rivals any drummer anywhere. The fact that he nailed that in one take blows my mind. Huh. And it's, he goes on to say. In only um, Neil and I had all in only four days. Neil and I had all the drum and bass parts down. When you record that quickly, you wonder if maybe some of the ugliness will rear its head two weeks down the road. There were only a couple of moments that sounded a tad unsteady over that work. So when when Rupert was describing what was going on, and I'm actually going. To, I'm, I'm going to do something different here, and I'm actually going to put in um, the this, this snippet. But Rupert was describing in loving detail, Neil's playing 16th notes on the hi-hats, and he's got, um, you know, he's going off to either side um, on the beat, depending on what he needs to do. 
as well as whatever his feet are doing. And then near the end of it, you know, on top of all of this, he starts to add in these eighth, eighth uh, tom notes. And it's 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 near the end of the song. I've I've already I've listened to it a couple different times, so I can I can put it in there. And we were Tom and I were kind of amazed. Um, I think our brains may still have been fried from the whole one take thing. And but I I was listening to to Rupert describe this, and and honest to goodness, it was with a huge degree of affection in his voice. I mean, he to this day is still impressed and awed or whatever you want to say by, by this experience. And I was thinking, you know, when you, when you think of the greatest Neil Peart moments, bravado does not leap into your mind. It's true. And, and, and I, I, you know, I brought that up that, you know, bravado is kind of a, a subtle song in a lot of ways. And, and, and Rupert pointed to the fact that, you know, and, and I, we've talked about this before. These guys are such consummate musicians that, you know, they they'll do that even if it's not in your face and, and totally obvious. But they want to do it just because they need to be able to see if they can do it. And I, I just I found that story to be really, really um, compelling. And and bravado, which was already growing in my estimation, just took off into the stratosphere at that point. Mm. And you're going to post that, uh, you're going to include that in this episode, Joe. Um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to put that little snippet in there because I think it's, uh, it's once you hear it, like you wouldn't really think of it because there's nothing about bravado. Yeah. Outside of the lyrics that really make you, you know, think about it. But, but, you know, it's one of those things where once you see it, you can't really unsee it. Huh. And, you know, I, I don't know. Maybe, I'm going to go listen to Bravado right after this. Okay. Or wait a month until we publish the uh, episode. And one or the other. One or the other. Bravado, um, that's an incredible story. I can't wait to hear that. that he had um while we're talking about roll the bones so in the original discussion that we had where we we talked about roll the bones we you know we were able to to get into the the story behind the quote-unquote rap section and whether you like that or not anything else hey i love the lyrics i love the lyrics of the rap session Uh, aside from that it's a bit goofy but the words during that terrific so that that rap, such as it is, was originally, I, I mean, I don't know if it was written, but when they sat down to record, they the band had wanted John Cleese to do it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, they actually went so far as to contact him, and he, he was actually supposed to do it. There was some 
some sort of scheduling conflict on the day that they were going to be doing it, uh, and they couldn't get him back in. But they actually had gone through his people to do it. It was actually wow. fairly official. So, so Tom, I'm wondering if you would like to share with the group the reason, or at least one of the stated reasons, that Rupert had previously not really wanted to work with Rush. Yeah, well, he was asked to produce Grace Under Pressure and... Maybe Signals, we're not sure, but certainly Grace. Yeah, it's definitely Grace. He said he was approached a couple of times. In the yeah, years. you know, you're, you're right. So uh, there was probably a number of these phone calls that happened. And what happened is one day they were in the studio and they were probably taking a break, sitting around, shooting the shit. And they asked Rupert, the band asked Rupert, you know, why to, were you sort of hesitant to to produce us for years? Because we were, you know, we, we had called you, you know, several times and you kind of kind of blew us off <laughs> and um you know I, I imagine that that would be a, a a bit of a blow to their their ego but they really wanted rupert to produce uh their their next album so you know they they once again asked him to to produce presto and you know rupert flat out told them that he really did not like Getty's high voice <laughs> the, the, the screaming <laughs> voice and and this is another one where i'm listening to it and i'm going like is he just am i hearing this right i'm like i'm, I'm like my head's exploding like i'm like oh my god he just, he just said that to the band and i'm just i'm like oh my gosh i um but yeah uh, but i find i find that interesting because at that point, we're talking about Presto, or we haven't technically recorded Presto yet, but we have had a number of albums where we sort of got over the whole screeching Getty Lee thing. So we had a good, at least three or four albums, maybe you know even more really, of sort of like the middle range, which is a, it's a good range for him, um, and. So I was like, wow, you know, that re he really, really didn't like that earlier stuff because that really deterred him from wanting, you know, maybe he didn't hear the later stuff. Maybe Rupert was so fixated on, you know, Hemispheres or, you know, 2012 or something um, when they asked him to do one of their newer um, albums. Actually, well, did, well, this makes sense because even in Grace Under Pressure, there was only a couple that didn't have the... Um, screeching high vocals so maybe he just hadn't heard you know some of the stuff and then he was like i don't want to do it because of that yeah and and maybe that's true but even even when he was telling this story about working on presto and you know after uh, this must have happened i guess during the rehearsal period where they were sort of feeling each other out maybe i, I don't know because he did say that you know, when they started recording Presto, he suggested that Getty sing a full octave lower than what he would normally think to sing. Hmm. And and to save, you know, save that 
and I forget how exactly he described it on the ceiling portion or something like that, um, you know, for, for very special moments. And it, 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 it actually came up. One of, one of the guys actually said something like that. Um, the first time we tried to talk about roll the bones, someone had mentioned something about, you know, how, how Getty was singing and then in in certain places where he would just totally bring it. I forget which song that was. But for me, you know, again, when we were talking about, um, you know, Presto originally, the, the first thing I thought of was Available Light. Mm. Because it, it's really not until, you know, that those crucial moments in Available Light. I mean, is that the only place on Presto where Getty, you know, goes to the ceiling? I think it is. So I think so, but but I, like like Tom, my my brain was melting out of my head hearing Rupert, you know, describe the story where he just flat out told, well, I really don't like the way you sing, Eddie. <laughs> I mean, that's just amazing. Yeah, that was. Um, I, w- I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall when he was telling that story um, to to the band, <laughs> where Rupert was telling that story to the band. But um, and and what's and, amazing to me about that is that I've always thought that the treatment of Getty Lee's voice on Presto and Roll the Bones is of, among the best of all of the Rush albums. Like I just think his voice sounds tremendous, and it is in the phase. So in my opinion, right, the best Getty Lee vocals basically start at Grace Under Pressure and pretty much wrap up at Presto. Roll the Bones, not bad, but we have too many Gettys in, in, in Roll the Bones, which continues on for the rest of the Rush catalog. Too many Gettys. So there are, so the treatment and the way Getty's voice sounds on Presto, to me, is among the best it's ever sounded. So it's just amazing that story for, to, to listen to you guys tell that because it's like, wow. And then to hear the, the way he sounded on Presto. Well, it's interesting, Paul, because he did, Rupert did mention that Presto has the lowest range that uh, Getty has ever sang. So I think it might be that actual range as well. Then uh, the range hand in hand with the actual um, processing or, you know, production of the vocals. Yeah. Yeah. You know, except for a few dribs and drabs that pretty much covers you know, the notes that I have um, from Rupert's conversation, certainly as it pertains to Rush, um, you know, but one of the things that was fascinating talking to him, I mean, this, we had brought up, you know, some of the other artists he worked with and, and Tom, you had brought up Anthony Phillips of early Genesis fame. And he said, Oh yeah, Anthony and I are good friends. We're going to the Prague Awards this, this weekend. I mean, it was just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> really? <laughs> I just thought that was that was the coolest thing, um, you know. And, and so he's, you know, he's still he's very much plugged in, and you know he he's he's a very very passionate man. So one of the things that he's working on, we we talked about a couple of his his more recent projects. You know how he got into the um, the songs for Tibet albums, and he gave a, a really, really compelling account of. And I didn't even know this, Tom. I don't know if, if you knew about this or Paul, 
in in whatever Olympics were in Beijing, what was that, 2006 or 12, or something like that? Don't know. 2008. Whatever, whatever Olympics were in Beijing. So wh whoever was putting this Songs for Tibet benefit out together um, really wanted to make a statement. So they ended up coinciding the release of that album with the mm -hmm. opening of those games. 2008. 2008. Perfect. Thank you. And so apparently while and, – and I don't recall – if it was, you know, athletes from multiple countries or just the UK or, or whatever it was, but apparently there were a, as a, a number of athletes who were walking in the opening ceremonies in Beijing with songs from Tibet playing in their earbuds because it had been released, you know, so everyone could download it on iTunes that day. And, mm. and he was, he was very, very proud of that. That's cool. Yeah, and I had never heard of that. Um, I don't pay that much attention to the Olympics, so there's no way I probably would have known it anyway. But um, it was it was a very very cool story. And then he was talking about um, you know a, a project that he has going on now that that is designed basically to to help you know protect copyrights and 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 royalties and whatnot for artists. So that they, you know, there's there's a way to um, to continue to get, you know, paid for basically, you know, your your creations um, in in the era of of streaming music and things like that. So, you know, this is where he's putting his his effort now. And like I said, he is extraordinarily passionate about it. Yeah, he uh, Rupert Hine is not a big fan of Facebook, too. He's. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and, it, and his point was, you know, with with place with platforms like Facebook and I know that we're our show notes are hosted on Facebook. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. But, you know, his his point is, you know, people are just giving away their all their data. And that's where all the value is going forward. I don't know that there's a whole lot of value in uh, progressive palaver, but so I, I don't feel like I'm. I'm compromising anything significant, but I, I certainly, you know, can see his point. There was a lot of good stuff. I'm trying to think if uh, there's anything else in regards to roll the bones or even presto for that matter that, um, that I, I had. Uh, I'm glad you brought up that whole Alex Lyson thing, Joe. Um, Cause I, I didn't have that as a note, but uh, I think that's all I have. One, one, one thing I'm, I'm looking at, and I've, just, I've got a, a few notes that we haven't explicitly covered, although we have talked around them. I'll just run through them quickly. Um, so Rupert had indicated that Rush, and, and it wasn't sure if it was management, the label, and or the band, had wanted him to produce a Rush album several times throughout the 80s prior to Presto. So again, if you look at the, the calendar, that would be Signals, Grace, and or Power Windows. Rupert suggested that it's quite possible that the, the idea to use Rupert may have come from Neil. He said that Neil in particular liked or was drawn to some of the sound design type work that Rupert did on his own albums. And, and Tom and Rupert had pretty extensive conversations mm -hmm. about that. That was that was really something um you know rupert had talked about 
using and and I, I I'm sure I'm not going to express this well, but but basically using body movements to trigger samples so that you could sort of treat that as a, a natural way to make music as opposed to just kind of hoop hitting a button, so to speak. Um, I, I want to say he had he had he had described some situation where he could be like recording something and like if you if he slapped his thigh it would do one thing or you know I, Tom and so he's he's been quoted as saying um, he said he, we once said that uh, he likes to record real drum sounds but they're recorded in an unreal way and you can interpret that um, in in a lot of ways but. <clears throat> One thing I talked to him about, I wanted to uh, talk to him about, is that on one of his songs, he recorded an actual thunderstorm that was actually happening during the time of this recording. And they put up microphones outside the window, and they recorded this whole thunderstorm outside. It's actually it's from a song called Dark Windows. If uh, any of the listeners want to find the song Dark Windows from Rupert Hind, uh, one of Rupert Hind's albums. And he uses the, the thunderstorm as percussion. And he sort of uses them in there in, in certain points to sort of create or evoke an emotional impact from you. And he does it on a beat where, like, a big drum would come in, maybe like a, a, a timpani sound or something that, that might come in. And it's sort of laid in there, not just as a cute little sound effect of, like, you know, oh, it's during a rainstorm. And, you know, you're putting in, yeah. you know, your, your thunderous sound effect. But he actually really incorporates this thunderstorm throughout the song, throughout Dark Windows. And it, it's done in a thoughtful way. And I, I really appreciated that because, I mean, that's really good sound design. I mean, if you're talking about uh, when I do sound design for a film, you're trying to evoke an emotional response from people and do it through different means. And that's, that's sound design. So I, I enjoyed my conversation just talking with him about how he goes about doing how should we say an unorthodox way of recording percussion sometimes and sometimes it's not percussion sometimes it's you know other sort of melodic things but uh, if you listen to dark windows you get a sense of what we're talking about and it's through these uh, through this thunderstorm that he really um evokes a certain emotional response through as he uses the thunderstorm as a percussion instrument and he does it successfully. So I think that's what um, you, you you were getting at. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty awesome. I, again, I'm sorry, Joe, I just, I grabbed a quick YouTube of dark windows and I'm going to put it in the, in the notes uh, for this, uh, this uh, amalgamation of episode that we've got here. Um, and just the quick, I was literally listening to it a little bit, Tom, while you were talking about it, hearing sort of the thunderstorm effects and it, 
sounds pretty awesome. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, he he gave the impression, like I said, that that Neil may have been some of the driving force for getting Rupert involved. Um, so he he mentioned that um, you know Rush were very open minded to working with him, and he said they wanted to create something new as opposed to into being into something that he had already done with another artist. So it wasn't like they listened to the fix and said, we need to sound like that. Or they listened to Howard Jones or whoever. Um, but I, I think, again, I think it was this sound design aspect that they, they saw some potential there. And, and clearly, you know, as, as we've already discussed, Rush was not, and is not afraid to try different things. So that makes a certain amount of sense. So when they actually got together, um, they met and and Rupert attended several days of rehearsal with the band as they were getting ready, you know, preparing the Presto songs and um, just to kind of see if they would mesh. And and that's I think that was when they ended up having, you know, the conversation about how long it would take to record an album. But ultimately, they decided that that they were going to work together. Hmm. And the, the last note um, that I have here is that it, certainly for Presto, Rupert had wanted to strip all of the keyboards out of the sound. Some of the sounds in Presto and Roll the Bones are controlled by drum pads or such, and some quote-unquote synth sounds are actually guitars with mega sustain, etc. Well, well, I'm glad it worked out. I'm glad they did what they did because I think Presto is a, it's a fa fantastic album. And um, I'm I don't have any problems with Roll of Bones. I think it's a wonderful CD. But um, <clears throat> back to sort of some of the prog connections that that Rupert Hine has. Uh, he, he did talk a little bit about recording with Anthony Phillips, as you mentioned, Joe, on um, Wise After the Event, uh, a 1977 recording from Anthony Phillips and... Uh, and sides well, in 1978 yep. and he still as you mentioned joe he, he still hangs out with anthony phillips uh <clears throat> it's not just um you, know, you can tell uh, he really has relationships with people that he 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 works with it's and you know, he did have a lot of great things to say about phil collins you know he yeah i was gonna say he had he had the the little segment we talked about phil collins was fascinating hmm. yeah so and it was it was it was great because you you really saw a side of Phil Collins that we haven't seen because this was a lot of the times that Phil would would do work for him were was early in his career when when Phil was playing drums and you know he would just come in and and play some percussion on a on a song for for Rupert and and then. And then just you know, hop in and out of the studio, and and apparently he brought a lot of energy, and he's always telling jokes, and he just really loved to be a part of anything that that was going on, and it was it was definitely it was nice to hear a story about Phil that was that you really painted a picture of him as a drummer, and not as the Phil Collins that we sort of know now, but it was the the drummer Phil Collins, and that that was that was a lot of fun to hear. That's awesome. And 
Yeah, and, and the only other story of that I can vividly remember, um, I, I couldn't help myself, so I had to go off on the, on the fixed thing for a while. Um, I was a little disappointed that he wasn't as in love with Dan K. Brown, their current bass player, as I was. Um, he had lots of great things to say about, um, oh, I forget the, his predecessor's name, Alfie Aegis, I think, or something to that effect. But he did... We, we did talk a little bit about Jamie West Orem and and what makes Jamie West Orem decidedly different from most and and really how that how Jamie's sound comes about because he doesn't his sound is is for the most part clean and and much like how he was describing with 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 reverence Neil's playing he he couldn't say enough about sort of the, the 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 wrist power and and the manner of attack with which Jamie West Orem plays that gives rise to the, his his ultimate guitar sound and and the the fact that the attack is is so quick and so hard that it allows a producer like Rupert to do things with that sound that you normally couldn't do with a with a clean guitar sound and uh, you know I, I was just sort of out of my mind at that point too. I thought that was a great story. Huh. You know, one thing I did, I was sort of joking around with him at the end. I said, Rupert, are you sure you're not a time traveler? Because you, you came out with a song in 1983 called picture phone. And yeah. I didn't know how he was going to react to that, but he was actually, uh, apparently he's had conversations with people about that. <laughs> and he's like, I, sh- I, I should get credit for the for the for the for the iPhone, uh, because in this in this song, picture phone, uh, he talks about a phone that you know you can you can see yourself and you know have, kind of have that um, proverbial you know Star Trek I- interaction with the with the face, um, but uh, with what? but with the phone. Was wasn't there a, a sinister aspect to that too? Tom, that that whole song and that story about the didn't the picture phone wasn't it in in the song used for nefarious purposes or something? Am I misremembering that? I think the song is yeah. The song has that. I'll have to go back and 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 listen to it. Um, and he, I, so, he so I, basically everyone every, everyone had these picture phones and they were taking pictures of things that they didn't want people to see. And he, I seem to recall, he then sort of tied that into, you know, some of the, the trouble that people can get into with their phones today um, and how that, that actually comes about. But Right, right. Yeah, it was fun. So that was, um, you know, that was, that was our conversation with Rupert. Now, obviously, most of it was, was focused on Rush and Presto, or I'm sorry, Presto and Roll the Bones and, um, you know, his relationship with Rush and, and you know, how he got into it. And, you know, he had, he had nothing but, but great things to say about the band and his time working with them. Um, and it was, it was, I mean, he was, he was way better of an interview than I ever could have imagined. And the depression I had when I discovered that that interview was, was in one of the 8% of, of botched recordings that we have, um, really, really depressed the hell out of me because it was, uh, it was phenomenal. It really, really was truly eye opening. 
It was was great. Well, I'm glad we got a chance to do this, and hopefully, I'll give our listeners a good idea of uh, the 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 time Rupert had with with Rush, <clears throat> and how it relates to our our segments on Rush with Presto and Roll the Bones. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This has been awesome. Awesome. <clears throat> it was it was a fun one. Rock and roll. I will uh, encourage everyone out there listening to uh, share any thoughts that you might have on Roll the Bones and or the fabulous Rupert Hine via the normal means at your disposal. That would be Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We are at Progpala at all of those. And we are, as always, available on both iTunes and Google Play for um, subscription and download. We encourage all of you to subscribe so that way when we release things in the middle of the night, you know about it. And we <laughs> are hosted on SoundCloud. 